Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 140, The Last Samurai. Today, we are discussing Helen DeWitt's novel, The Last Samurai, which I am compelled to point out has nothing to do with the horrible Tom Cruise movie of the same name. Or this does is- it? Or, or does it? This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys. Hey. How you guys doing? Hi. Well... Julia just finished this book, so she's on. Uh, she's in last samurai yes. mode. I'm in it. Julia, did you survive the polar vortex? I like the way you say it in a past tense. Okay, in New the major polar vortex, yes, is over. But in New England, we have winter from November through early April. So this is the worst time of year. The polar vortex is over, but the real will to live is sapped around now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where it just lingers for a couple of months. Of now, it's just, now there's no news reports. It's just cold out, right? Right. Right. Well, the polar vortex, I d- didn't like say this publicly anywhere because I was so scared of what was happening. And I'm never normally that way. But my sister was on a two-week dog sledding trip in Minnesota. Um, oh and God. I was like... Uh wow, that's horrible timing. It was it was the week that people were like dying going out to right. their cars. So how was she? What happened to her? Oh, she got back what and happened? she was like, "Oh, it's fine. Oh, did something happen here?" And it's like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, she had no clue. <laughs> they were like way off the map, um, in like negative forty, fifty, but totally prepared. Like that was exactly totally what they prepared. Were expecting okay. Yeah. Wow. So hold hold on a second though for your sister. So when you say she was off dog sledding. Correct. So this is like a hobby? Is she in a league? Like, she, is this like when Ryder was into kickball? She's never done it before. Um, <laughs> exactly, like when I was in kickball. <laughs> uh, she, lots of hipsters um, sitting around drinking beer. That's what you do when you're dog sledding. Uh, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, no, she works for Outward Bound, teaching like outdoor survival skills to middle school and high schoolers. Right. Um, she so, did the Pacific Crest Trail too, right? A couple years yep, ago. Yep, she did the PCT and oh. she lived in Australia and she's done a lot of cool stuff. So Outward Bound, like that's their like professional development. It's not like go to this boring conference. It's like, anybody want to go on a dog sledding trip? Um, and she was like, yeah, I've never done that before. So she signed up. Oh my and God, that's happened crazy. to fall on that week. Um, so yeah. she's fine. See, at UCR, but, what we do instead is we do trust falls. But everyone's such doughy professors. Everyone's just falling and breaking their backs and shit. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that you posted a maximum amount of palm tree pictures while everyone I know is freezing their ass off. Um, well, <laughs> I did do something kind of shitty, Julia. <laughs> oh, I, did you? <laughs> I did. Um, when it was negative 43 degrees in Chicago, uh-huh. I... Uh, I texted my friends, uh, the famous writers, Gina Frangello and Robert Berge, who lived together. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, is it cold there? <laughs> you asshole. And then they were like, Todd, of course it's cold here. It's the minus 43 degrees. And then I said, can you see your breath? And that that took Rob over the edge. <laughs> 
He's like, I'd like to think this is funny right now, but it's, I've never been this cold before in my life and people are dying. And I was like, so you can see your breath? He's like, you can see your breath when it's 50 degrees. I was like, oh. In, in your reenactment, they become Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> well, they'll, just... never, they'll never listen to this show, so they won't know that we've done this. <laughs> so, Todd, what's the longest that you've ever been in, like, a winter environment? Oh, you were Bennington. with me. Bennington? Ten, ten days in Bennington, yeah. Ten days. Ten days. Ten days. Extend that to like four to six months. That's well, I, what it's like. I don't have to. I'm Jewish. I live in the desert. <laughs> Plenty of Jews live here. <laughs> oh, uh, I would argue incorrect. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll take it up with them. There's only like 9,000 Jews in all of Alabama. How many could there be in Connecticut? Oh, and there's a huge Jewish community yeah, a huge here. Jewish Are you kidding? Connecticut. The Connecticut Jews? I thought they were all yeah. wasps. Hmm. Oh boy, here we go with this stereotype. Look, everything I know about Connecticut, I learned watching Quiz Show. So I don't, I don't really know anything. <laughs> well, too bad we've been friends for a decade while I've lived here. I'll tell you anything you want to know. Oh, I did also set a book in Connecticut once. Huh. That might have been a mistake. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should have done some more research. Yeah, well, that's what the reviews said too. <laughs> My All favorite right, ready fact. to uh, yeah, move to The Last Samurai? Yeah, how did we yeah. come to this book exactly? Right okay, well, it? yeah, I was going to say, um, so Helen Dewitt's debut novel, uh, The Last Samurai, it was published in 2000 to a lot of critical acclaim, but none of us, uh, who, and all three of us, I think, are, are pretty well-read people, we had never heard of it until we encountered Vulture's best of books, uh, best books of 2000s list that we did an episode on about, what, five or six episodes back. And The Last Samurai was the number one pick. Um, so we decided to do an episode on all 482 pages uh, of this thing. 535. Is that what you had? My edition only had 480 something. Well, it's long, guys. It's long. <laughs> Quite long. So I'll, I'll try and summarize. Much of it is little, in Japanese. It's also. a very weird book to summarize. The um, it's it's narrated by two different characters. A woman named Sibylla. Is that how? Am I pronouncing yes. that? Sibylla. Correct. A woman named Sibylla and her son Ludo. Ludo. Um, Sibylla is an American living in England, where she came to study at Oxford before she abandoned academia. And she is, I mean, despite being a, a bona fide genius, she's basically living as a shut-in with right. her son Ludo, who Luda. is a child prodigy. Uh, Ludo, he learns to read at two and then just gains languages like crazy until he's reading Greek, Hebrew, Japanese, Inuit. And then he's also mastering Italian. complex mathematics and science, Italian, and all of that before the age of six. Um, and then... Sibylla is obsessed with watching the Akira Kurosawa film Seven Samurai over and over and over again. And so the, the second half of the novel is narrated by Ludo once he's uh, 11 years old and he goes on this mission to discover who his father is. And that mission is sort of interpreted and organized through the lens of Seven Samurai, the, the movie that he's sort of using as a, a, a life guide. Hmm. Right? I think that kind of covers yeah. it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's not... Um, what what you just explained makes it sound like it follows a normal linear path. It right. does not. It's 
it it is interspersed with bits of other parts of literature, a lot of uh, um, sort of commingled conversations about the Seven Samurai, um, stuff about uh, like studies of Kurosawa's work, um, lots of Japanese, German, and Italian, and Greek. Um, There's lots of ampersands. And lots of ampersands. Lots of, lots of no quotation marks, so interior yeah. and yeah. exterior dialogue sort of blends in and out. It's, it's yeah. like Finnegan's Wake... At, if it were told by um, a really smart 27-year-old. Uh, yeah. And I would say much more... Re we're making it sound less... Or more cryptic than it is. It's actually very readable. Yeah. But it's a challenging, challenging... It, it's not a book that you would, like, take to the pool unless the pool was on the agency and you were a Greek scholar. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Yeah, it's not dense though, right? It's no. not slow reading. It's actually very quick reading. Um, I, I, I just, I'm still kind of baffled by it. Like, I mean, I guess that's like, yeah. I, I, in, in a good way, I'm not sure what this book is really about. And I don't know. I mean, that's why I'm excited to talk about it because I'm, I'm genuinely curious what you guys think this book is about. I have, you know, and I want to, in a weird way, I kind of want to reread it or keep thinking about it. And that's, I think that's well, a great sign. And, and we mm -hmm. should we should say also that this, the book has had sort of a cryptic history, too. Um, you said that it's not really related to The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise movie. But in fact, it is. Because the book came out in 2000 um, from Miramax Books, which no longer exists. And Miramax Books put the book out of print in 2003 when Miramax Books was merged with 8,000 different um presses so the book went out of print very quickly uh i mean just as a comparison oh, okay. my crappy first novel has been in print since the year this book came out too it's never gone mm -hmm. out of print um but miramax books was absolved by a bunch of different or uh dissolved and absorbed yeah. and the book fell out of print um but it became sort of this cult uh classic and didn't get back into print for several years later but by the time it was back in print several years later, if you went and Googled it, all that came up, and in fact, all that comes up when you Google it at first, is the horrible Tom Cruise movie, The Last yeah. Samurai. And so if you yeah. even look on Google for The Last Samurai, before you get to the Helen DeWitt thing, you're going to have to go through all of The Last Samurai merch that's <laughs> yeah. still for sale on Amazon. Well, that's what, carrying this book around, I had to always, everybody was like, oh, from the Tom Cruise, is the book better? It could not be, no matter what. <laughs> so I think, I mean, and this is a good way, and I think of talking about this book, like I, in the little time that I've had to process between when I finished this and now so um, now which was five minutes half an hour yeah um so helen dewitt has had and i think this is part of the reason it went out of print she just has like epic battles with editors yeah um she has i do not mean this as an insult but i think it's just a fact i've skimmed like three interviews with her she is angry <laughs> she's like a, <laughs> oh, i don't know anything about her prove. <laughs> that's funny I mean, the afterword of this book which we'll get to later and i think is a huge part mm -hmm. of the point of the book like she basically believes in knowledge and the classics and like the human potential to know an, an infinite amount of things and that's not something that she's like kind of toting around in a ted talk way this is like Living. i'm fucking pissed that western education and western society doesn't 
you know, see this infinite potential. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and <laughs> as soon as I started reading it and it's going into this like deep classics stuff, like I love classics. I took classics courses in school and kind of went through a phase where like every novel that I read, if it had classics in it, I'd be like, hell yeah. Like this would have been my favorite book. <laughs> I was right. But I'm like, yeah, this is a book written by someone who cares about the classics, who it's not like a fun, cute, like Hercules joke. And she even throws shade at Donna Tartt in an interview. Oh, I was just yeah, I saw that. I read that interview. <laughs> yes, I saw that too. She's like, some people think classics are tweet. Like in that Donna Tartt book. I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, she doesn't um, live in America, so she can throw stones at people she's not going to run into in the green room at the book festival. <laughs> right. So I think it's really interesting that she's got something to prove and that has extended all the way into her publishing career like she's it sounds like she's gone to war with copy editors over like the typeface of the japanese well this is a really i mean it's a super uncompromising novel and yes midway through i was reminded of the idiot by uh alif badaman that we read um a year or so ago where it's a in a way it's like alif badaman thought she was writing this book you know, yes. about yeah. super smart intellectuals uh, adrift in a sea surrounded by people dumber than them um, and how they, these people cope. But in the meantime, these people who are super smart have menial jobs doing next to nothing because they're underappreciated for the knowledge that they do possess and that knowledge is of classic literature. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I, I saw that, but this book is actually a lot funnier and more self-aware yep. than The Idiot is. Um, the, the, and it asks really hard questions. You know, I, I can't, I was thinking about something else as I was reading this and actually has something to do with something writer said a long time ago. So Ludo, her son is this child prodigy, um, who learns all the languages, has read the Odyssey by the time he's three and he goes to first grade class at age, uh, five or whatever. And the teacher's like, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to keep up you're a day late and he's like well have you read odysseus and like you know he's going through this list of stuff and it's this bizarre postmodern horror show scene um but there's a lot about child geniuses and about um the ability for children to pick up things that adults can't because they're so filled with all the other crap and i was reminded of something you'd said writer years ago at this point uh, probably on the show when we were talking about great child actors who become terrible adult actors Mm -hmm. and how you said essentially it's just them being natural you know it's just them being in the moment and picking things up and not being afraid of their emotions and not being afraid of guilt or shame or any of this stuff just being present in the moment and i was like well that's what happens to the child geniuses right they just they want that language therefore they take it in they want to know about biophysics if they have a brain that can withstand it they just take it in they're not buttressed by all that other shit then by the time they're 11 years old and they're at fucking harvard surrounded by 25 year olds and they're shamed for what they learned then they become you know addicted to oxycodone and making porn with rodney ellen rippy or whatever <laughs> that's yeah, well, not no, in this book <laughs> i mean the truth I, I as far as i know like the 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 it's and i think this is still true that, that child prodigy or people that are identified as child prodigies um tend to sort of settle into pretty like normal or average 
to below average lifestyles right. uh, at, after, you know, because they, they just become garbage men, you know, or whatever, because that whatever, whatever the experience of being recognized as extraordinary at a young age, you know, and that's what I feel like a lot of this book is about is, a, mm-hmm. is that tension. It's like, is she ruining this kid's life or right. is she satisfying something that, you know, and, and, and they keep talking about JS mill, um, which I don't know if you guys know about that whole, I mean, I guess it's in here, but you know, he, his father did, do that to him like basically was like i'm going to force my kid to be a super genius and um and mill ended up being a genius and an incredible utilitarian philosopher that we still refer to to this day but he looked back on the way his father raised him negatively i think um i believe he came down saying like it wasn't because he ended up being suicidal uh, in his late teens or early twenties. Um, and he credited it to the fact that he had all this pressure and had been, you know, undergone this education. So, yeah, I feel like so much of this book is sort of this thought experiment. Like if you had a four year old who could speak all these languages, and of course I'm reading this book as a parent of a four year old. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's like, it's in a weird way. It's like wish fulfillment, you know, while you're reading it, you're like, Either you're either positioning yourself as the parent or as the child, right? You're either reading it going, oh, it's like a superpower. He's got all these languages and and he's going to the school and you kind of can't wait for that confrontation. You're like, ha he's going to prove this teacher wrong. And and the, the, the book kept, keeps setting those situations up where somebody's like treating him like a, a four-year-old and, or right. a six-year-old or an 11-year-old and being condescending to him. And you're, as the reader, along, you know, over his shoulder going, show him how much you know. Stick it to him. <laughs> you know, you're so much. So it's like this weird superpower. Um, but it also feels very fraught with yeah. danger and potential missteps. And and the fact that that um, Sibylla is seems mentally ill, right? Sibylla does not seem like a great mom. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a, I can't wait passage. to get into that. Let's finish talking about him, and then we'll talk about her. I'm ready. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the the central passage that we should probably talk, or one of the central passages that we should talk about that really struck me was the there's a moment where they go to a concert that lasts yes. all yeah. night, <laughs> seventeen hours, or seventeen hours or whatever, and it's because Sibylla reads an article about the 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 pianist who's this genius musician and. And he does all these weird concerts that pisses people off. And, and then they go to the 17-hour concert. And then at the end of the concert, she looks over and her four-year-old has left her a note saying, I walk, I'm walk, i walking home. And she didn't even notice her four-year-old leaving her at this. And he walks through New York City or through England, through London to get home. And it's like for the next couple pages, it just goes through this checklist in her mind of like how much she should panic. And yeah. uh, I thought that was so fascinating. I and mean, maybe that's just because I'm a parent reading it. But it's like, you know, she she goes through like, do you uh, do I freak out at this moment? Like he, right. he, a four year old walking home. It's like, is it possible that he would be attacked by somebody? Yes. And she has to like, what is the phrase she uses? Like she basically says you need to separate potential from probable. Right. And, yeah. and she keeps doing that. <laughs> and you realize like, oh, yeah, that is a big parenting thing. Right. Like and that speaks a lot to the way parents always feel like you're always going, well, I got to strap him in a car seat because, you know, we could have an act. It's like, well, is it? probable or is it possible and like right. so many that 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 question like is a lot of parenting is hinging and this is an extreme case like it is like actually a four-year-old walking home through the streets of london at night probably would be pretty safe as long as he knows where he's going uh i would not let my four-year-old do it but well there's a there's also like the she's she's trying to do the math between a kidnapping and a rape at some point right, right. Like, right. like rape is possible but surely less likely to attack a small child than say me 
<laughs> You're like, and then she's like, and I would have walked home. Right, so. right, right, yeah. exactly. And then the next step is she's trying to figure out whether to punish him or not, like how to make him feel bad. And she ultimately is like, there's nothing to say to my son because he didn't do anything necessarily wrong. He got bored with him. Yeah, it's a yeah. So I loved. I was like riveted by the parenting aspects of this novel and they really fade away as she gets more mentally ill which is interesting um but they're like I don't I don't want to be like she's a bad mom or she's a great mom because one thing that this novel does really well um is there's these little moments that are so the consciousness of a parent so like the alien there's Mm -hmm. like she refers early on a lot to like the alien so she's like teaching him these alphabets he's begging to learn or whatever and the alien will say like and now the alien spoke its voice and its voice was mild as milk and it said he's just a baby uh and then she's like battling with like he wants to learn but i know this is probably not good but how deep do i go into this thing and so it's not like she's a complete idealist she has these doubts and she doesn't know whether to follow you know like what he wants or not and there's one part where she says, like, he's, like, begging her to learn, like, one more letter of the Greek alphabet or something. And <laughs> she, there's this little line, and I'm like, yes, this is, this is motherhood. It's, like, I can stand five more minutes, and I will, like, I'll teach him one more thing. And she just, like, keeps going through five more minutes, five more minutes, until she's, like, created this intellectual monster. Yeah. So... You know, it doesn't get really bad until he's like way down the deep end of his level of knowledge. So I don't think he's, I don't think she's a bad mom. It's like what parent doesn't want their kid to like do well and fulfill the potential that they didn't fulfill, which right. is what this story, like what a, that's a classic story. But it, and um, it's the story of her entire family. Like everyone right. had these high expectations and then they settled for something less for comfort or money or time or love or whatever it might have been right and wait one more thing one more thing i wrote some notes on this parenting another line i totally loved is he's like begging to um uh know who his father is and she's very resistant to that and she's like you're not old enough to know him and he screams at her how do you know i'm old enough to know you and she says what makes you think i think you are (laughs) you know and it's like oh like a single parent alone in this like great gardens house or whatever with your kid like (laughs) that just speaks to all her like loneliness and their you know extreme bond together and I thought there were a lot of there were a lot of moments where I was like this is a book about parenting um yeah parenting a smart child that at some point realizes that there's something wrong with you also mm. like by the time he's 11 which is uh the last third of the book or so maybe last quarter of the book like he's aware that he's the the roles have changed and that he's now the more responsible one in the relationship mm-hmm. um but i was also thinking about um something that we actually had talked about uh off the show a couple weeks ago which is that when i was a kid my mom uh was 33 years old and the single mother of four children, all of whom would end up being authors. Yeah, and she she was a lunatic. My mom, like I, I 
Well, that's why point, she was probably elite. Yeah. At one point, I, I actually had to have her committed. Um, and now I'm like, well, yeah. Because her, <laughs> she had four children who wouldn't shut the fuck up, were smart, articulate, lucid, and knew how to push her buttons, you know? <laughs> and she yeah. brought in, not unlike um, Sibylla in this book, she brought in just a cavalcade of men um, through our lives. Um, and for a lot of years, like, I, I was upset about that because she brought in just some horrible people into our lives. And then one night I was talking to my sister about it and we were just like, why did she bring in such so many scumbags and weird people and drunks and painters and shit? And my sister Linda just said she was lonely. And I was mm-hmm. like, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, she was 40 years old. With four children. Oh, my God. Of course she was lonely. Of course she was lonely. Um, And so that, you know, these are things that obviously, listeners, if you're 19 and you hate your mom or your dad or whatever, sometimes these are things that you don't realize about your parents until you're old enough to To have already buried them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I thought that the the parenting, I I felt like the book got weaker once Sibylla faded from the book. and it, you know, the, like like you're saying, the second half of the or the last third of the book really becomes about this this quixotic father search, um, which is truly bizarre. It's because you think it's going to be about finding who his real dad is, but it quickly becomes something else. It sort of becomes this enactment, ritualistic. Uh, testing of potential fathers right. uh, that Ludo, as a young genius can can try and find like his equal or a father worthy of him and uh it's a really it's a it's a fascinating and you know it goes down a lot of like random rabbit holes of information and storytelling and Mm. you know this book covers a lot of different countries and uh situations that are truly bizarre um and i'm not like like i said i'm still not quite sure how it all adds up um not that I need so, to, or not that we need to, but as an experience, it's 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 big. It's it's very ambitious, and it reaches yeah. in a million different directions. Here, so, go ahead, Julie. I feel like what this book becomes about, which is fascinating, given the given the first two thirds of the book. So, let me back up. A lot of our like favorite books as a culture are about like you know, blood is like your destiny and once you find out who your family is or what Hogwarts house you're in or whatever, <laughs> right. like, you'll be the prince. Right. Right. You're the, right? Right. You're like, the one. It. Right. And that is how the first two thirds of this book go. It's like, right. this, especially the opening is like this beautifully written, like mythic tale of geniuses. Um, <clears throat> but what happens is oh, I'm just deciding what to give away here. I will not give away. Um, the big turn that you expect to be at the end of the book, but it's really quite in the middle. Mm -hmm. Um, So it becomes less about who his father really is. Like, that's not the question. The question is like, you choose your destiny. You choose your family. Like you choose how to apply these like crazy skills and knowledge and curiosities that are like the bedrock of your childhood. Like if you knew that much when you were so little, what what are all the potentials open to you? And he's right. really exploring that, right? He's mm-hmm, like, yeah. 
can I be like a crazy, <laughs> really insane um, modern artist is one or right. like an astrophysicist mm-hmm. or like a gambling cad type person. <laughs> right. um, yes, that. <laughs> and yeah, and they're all like so intoxicating and it does feel really mythic. Mm-hmm. But what's cool, what I liked about this last section of the book is it's not like, what am I really inside? It's a complete like, I'm going to choose. I'm going to keep going until I find the one that, you know, resonates with me. Mm. And then the way that he, the way that he like ends the fantasy is confessing that, you know, he's not related to them or whatever. And so like for him to end this, this quest, he has to just like go on with whatever fantasy is Mm -hmm. left Mm -hmm. at the end. I'm trying so hard not to spoil. Um, No, you're doing a great job. You're you're doing doing great. In a way it's like mama Mia. (laughs) <laughs> it is like Mamma Mia. It's a deconstructed Mamma Mia. Yeah. It's the opposite of Mamma Mia. It's saying yeah. like, okay, your real parent and I think this is the experience of a lot of people who are adopted or have some parent who's like a complete shithead. Like they meet the parent or they know who the parent is and they're like, Well, they're horrible. Mm-hmm. So no, like I reject that. And I'm gonna choose this other family. And we don't, I don't think we see that represented in literature enough, you know, like that emotional journey of like, no, like forget them, fuck them, you know, onward and upward. To right. a, well, I mean, a I, physicist I, who will slap me on the ground. Well, I think the, um, <laughs> the natural thing in, in books and movies and stuff is that the, the belief that a happy family is in fact, a, a realistic thing that your parents yeah. in fact do love you that your siblings do love you all that stuff um you know the the american dream is the nuclear family basically um it's what separates us from europeans where everyone's having affairs and they talk about it um that's not we're still a puritanical society here in the most part um but this book you know his quest to find his his chosen father as it were is you know the the quest of putting together seven samurai you know it it is literally if you see the seven samurai or the american version the magnificent seven it's it's you know that's how you assemble your team it's also how you assemble your team in oceans 11 or oceans 8 or in baby driver or in any of these things where you're finding the group of people you trust to pull off the heist of the century it just so happens that the heist of the century for him is his life yeah. Um, mm. but it's, it's a trope that you see time and time again, where you're, you know, you're taking the best parts of different people and then you throw them all in the Millennium Falcon and, and you, you know, you take on the Death Star. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was going to bring up Star Wars too, because it's not just that biology is like a positive destiny. It's like a negative destiny as well, which this book also resists, you know, like, it's not saying like, oh, since Darth Vader is evil, you have some evil inside you that you always struggle against. No, it's like the real father's like some asshat. Right. And that doesn't <laughs> affect Ludo. Like, he doesn't become an asshat, you know? He's just like, oh, you're irrelevant to me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And that that doesn't occur in Star Wars. The only possible twist, it's like the only kind of narration Star Wars understands is like a surprise relative. It's so annoying. <laughs> Well, it's because George Lucas wasn't a writer. He was a director. But um, it's interesting that a book like about families and about family relationships is 
turns to become about like mentorship mm-hmm. or intellectual yeah. leadership. Yeah. You know? And, and the freedom to choose that or to create that yeah. situation, to not be bound by debt. I really like the way you're, you're talking about this, Julia. I, I feel like that, and it makes it a really optimistic book. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because it, yeah. it, it, it opens, it opens it up. It says like, you know, all this, all this inf- Well, here, I mean, one of the things I was trying to think about was like, wow, in a, you know, this book is was written in 2000, but in a lot of ways, it becomes this sort of um, like a parable for millennials in general, um, in the sense that information, we have all the information in the world available to us, mm-hmm. right? Like, because of the internet, because and, and I don't think it's a surprise that it was written in 2000, like right at when like the internet was really becoming the internet in, in the sense that any language you want translated could be translated for you. Any like we are all like ludos to a certain extent, like just by existing in today's world. And it's like we have all the knowledge, we have all, everything at our fingertips. What are we going to do with it? And are we going right. to be paralyzed by it, or are we going to be told by that information? What, like it's like no, we have to go out and choose how to you know how to live and and how to use that information towards some kind of end and. And Ludo, you know, he creates this kind of father mission, but yeah, it, it, it becomes more about what you're talking about, Julia, like more about uh, focusing what you have and, and choosing your own destiny. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's really, it's a, it's a great, it's, it, it's free. Um, that's a cool yeah. reading. I really like that. And so, it's also, go ahead, oh, go ahead, Todd. No, go ahead. I'm going to, okay. Uh, there's also, um, Probably my favorite part of the book is the most like easy to read and funniest part. It's very early. Um, but there's a chapter where they're going around on the circle line in mm-hmm. London on the tube. And there's this, it's so well constructed, this like absolutely endless parade of people like commenting on what he's reading, uh, what he's reading and all their various dumb comments like oh it's great for grammar oh he's he's a little young isn't he or oh it's amazing you're doing that and like after this has gone through like over and over for like 20 pages um <laughs> uh Sibylla says like zero people said like the original greek is beautiful like, no <laughs> right. one is just like it's great to like art for art's sake knowledge for knowledge sake right. like, no one is making that argument and i think this book is making that argument too right. it's like yeah it's really cool to have all these languages at your disposal it's really like the seven samurai is just a good movie um it's it's making that argument a lot too is that like knowledge is fun and yeah. well fun is not a word i'd apply to this book on any no. level but like <laughs> knowledge is you know like alive and you should play with it at every given opportunity. And the important part also about that scene that you're talking about is that they're on the tube all that time because they don't have heat in their apartment and it's so cold. So she just takes her son and they ride the tube all day long to stay warm and just sit there and read books. Um, Which like, like that's, that's what you do, right? When you're single and poor, like you go places for entertainment. Like you go to Target and just stand in Target all day long, yeah. or whatever. And the it real might be. there's tragedy in there, right? Like the the implied tragedy right. is that the world doesn't recognize these people as useful, you know, and what right. they're doing, all this thinking and all this translating and artistic innovation that they're sort of running through in their heads or their thirst for knowledge is useless, right? It doesn't make money. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sell twiddly winks or whatever, you know, the world would 
is instead rewarding. They're struggling. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that, that there's a condemnation of, of uh, all of civilization very, very clearly so, built into this book. Yeah. Like I said, she, she is. Says, You're right. She, yeah, she's, got, really she got, she's got some. Anger. I mean, we should also say so, along right, so the way, like you know, we've been talking a lot about plot, uh, but there's so much. In this book, just if like if you're a language geek at all, like there's actual mm-hmm. information and incredible insight in moments uh, like you know comparative language stuff and like if you if you're just one of those readers, I mean this is really a a reader's reader or like a mm-hmm. uh, is that the right word? It, it's a book about it's a book about writing yeah. and reading. Yeah, so if you're like a else. real book geek, this this book is super satisfying on a lot of levels. Uh, and just along the way the insights about language like, you know, I only I only yeah. sp- you know very poorly speak French or no French, but like uh, just are in a little bit of Latin and like just my little bit of knowledge, you know, felt titillated. Like I got excited again in a way that I haven't mm-hmm. since college where it was like, yeah, I should learn another language. How hard could it possibly be? And even if it's really hard, that's really good for my brain. And it activates these parts that we don't use anymore. Like as we get older, right. we just get set in our ways. We just forget that like just activating a part of your brain is so fun and really helpful. And just reading this book can sort of light those parts of your brain up that you've maybe have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I I took six years of French and I can speak I can I can speak it better than I can read it. Um but so this book it sort of also it makes this argument that every book in English should have some bits of other languages mm-hmm. in it too. Um because language is not just this one thing. And it's like yeah, it's like a pretty good idea. Make you make you do other things. And then, of course, this book is the template for um, that sort of thing. Um, but but the other thing that it got me reminded of when she was talking about all those things, about stimulating your brain and and using language in different ways and, and using um, perception in different ways is, and this is going to sound weird, but when I got those glasses that showed me color for the first time, it stimulated a part of my brain that hasn't stopped being stimulated. And it was physically and emotionally hard to wear those glasses at first because I was processing so much information at one time and trying to figure out, like, what what is reality anymore? What is, what is truth when everything that I've seen my entire life is false? And I was thinking about that as it relates to language, like how much you lose not knowing how something is described in French or Spanish or Latin or whatever it might be, that we're so cloistered in by the bounds of our own language that we never know a larger world. Okay, so there's a great passage about this very early. Let me, I highlighted it. Um, So it's about, like, mixing uh, different mediums. Oh, crap. Mm Um, and I'm just lost my place, but I'm going to find it. Give me one sec. Um, so it it gives the example of like music or painting first. And then it says, this was all commonplace and banal to a painter or musician. And yet the languages of the world seem like little heaps of blue and red and yellow powder, which had never been used. This is is the very thing that got me thinking about that. But if a book just used them so that the English spoke English and the Italians Italians, that would be as stupid as saying use yellow for the sun because the sun is yellow. And it 
goes uh, on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's so what got me thinking about that. playing with language. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Is this the greatest book of the 21st century now that we are 19 years in? Well, you know what? It's definitely the bookiest book. Uh, yeah. I mean that in like, like in that, you know, there, there is a, an argument about just how you judge literature is, um, is that, uh, it could only be a book. Do you know what I mean? That it, right. it could not be a movie. It could not be a play. It could not be. And this is an argument for that. Like there's there, you know, you can't say that about a lot of books. Um, and so if we're, if we're talking about like, Yes, literature. Like this is some of the best literature I've read in a while. That could only be literature. Um, I've read lots of books that tell a great story or have great characters or have a great point. But um, this does remind me of like James Joyce and mm-hmm. Faulkner and some of my favorite, more experimental writers who just push literature in a direction that I haven't seen it gone before. And that is. That's a feat. That that's a, such a huge accomplishment. Um, so I loved it. Um, and you know, I, I think I, I think a lot of people who are bookish or who are regular readers will love it too. But it's not something I would recommend to everybody. Yeah, and you know, I I think of this book. I mean, I it will really depend on how often I find myself returning to it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But I think about this book in terms of the culture at large, right? And I think is this book as important as Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, for instance, which was somewhere in the top 15 uh, of that list that Vulture put yeah, out Yeah, I'm looking at the list now. And like for another one, Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking. Yeah, like, or, or even uh, Viet Ton Nguyen's The Sympathizer, uh, which I don't know if either of you guys read, but which was remarkable, mm-hmm. which asks important, larger questions about culture um, outside of the arts. Now, I think this is a book for writers and readers but i don't necessarily know if you take this book to you know your average james patterson reader if they're they're just gonna be like this is i don't want to read this this isn't entertainment like how i felt about roma where i'm not sure if roma is entertainment or not i sure did like it but i don't i mean it's a thing of beauty but i don't know if i'd ever watch it again i think this book i agree todd i I mean, I really liked it and I don't know, maybe it's the best, but I think that the way to enjoy this book is to be on the side of like this extreme intellectual, you know, point of view. And there's like a sense of superiority to that, that the reader has to have to enjoy the book. So like, is this the most inclusive book I've ever read? No, <laughs> you know. Well, she has an axe to grind, right? Which, she's making a point, right. which yeah, her right. her note at the end is very telling. When she's basically saying like anybody could be Ludo, right? Like that's kind of the vibe. Right. It's like yeah. if only our education were better, like our education system, and we could allow children to flourish, which is kind of. A, I I totally agree with that, but it doesn't. It kind of like sets aside all social, besides the educational. De- system like it doesn't really take on you know like one thing that's annoying about this book is Sibylla has like the option to get out of poverty and doesn't Mm -hmm. and it's it's weird it's not about like the social systems that are like keeping them down it's like the only thing that matters is how smart you are and 
that's it. So like, that's the only like pursuit of the novel. So it doesn't really range wide enough. And I could be wrong. I just finished it. I need to think yeah. about it more. Well, I, the, the, the counter argument I would make is that there's lots of, in the father search, there's lots of stories about international diplomacy yeah. and saving people and like the ethics mm-hmm. of, right. you know, and I think the last samurai or seven samurai too is a, is a, I, have, I actually haven't seen the movie. I, I'm like a huge Kurosawa fan who has not seen seven samurai. So I, I wanted to before we recorded this and I didn't get to it. That's <laughs> like saying I'm a, I'm a huge I mob know, movie fan. I know, I but it's one of, Godfather. you know, I, I, sparse, I, I spaced them out. But anyway, yeah, I okay. haven't gotten to Seven Samurai yet. And since Filmstruck uh, went, went uh, uh, yeah, yeah, now I have no access to it Too until bad. the Criterion channel launches in like a month. And then I'll be able to watch it. In the meantime, I couldn't get a hold of it. Anyway, uh, the, I, you know, it's about ethical behavior, right? Like the, all of this yeah. samurai mm-hmm. stuff, it does relate to having a code and being, and there's lots of, um, in a lot of the, the sort of side stories that the book meanders down, there are children in peril um, and, and, and there's a lot of death and I, I feel like there is some, a lot, there's, there's, a, there's an argument about ethical behavior and, um, and how to navigate various countries and systems. Uh, I, there's something in there. I'm, you're you know, right. I'm, I'm not being very clear. You're right. But, and I also, yeah. um, now that you're talking, like we haven't said it so directly, but like this novel is also about like a woman giving up her entire life for her child and kid. that yeah. includes this is a weird thing to say, but it includes her giving up wanting to end her life is implied. So right. she's basically living with mental illness just to like keep him going um, and see him through to adulthood. And that's that's not nothing <laughs> as a theme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not <No>. nothing. <laughs> that's so not yeah. So there's a lot of themes, but is it the best? I don't know. But it's like that question's just fun, right? Like, what's the point of that question? Yeah. Totally. Right. You know. But the other thing I I think is on Vulture's side, of course, is that you know it's a it's a selected group of it was like 50 people or whatever of really well read. Um, writers, critics, primarily and writers. And critics. Yeah. Um, and so, if the three of us, like we said originally when we talked about this list, had never even heard of the book, and we three are, I think, fairly well read, and I'm a professor, these are things that we're supposed to know. Like, how could it be the best if it hasn't touched a larger part of the culture? Is that a part? Is that a part of being the best? I don't know. No. No. I don't think so. Not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, it's one of those things that it's going to be, you know, since they just got reissued, what, within the last couple of years, mm-hmm. it's going to be reevaluated. And, you know, like, like I was saying, it started to speak to me about our current situation in a way that felt very, you know, like, I am overwhelmed with the amount of information in the world and what I have to read and think about mm-hmm. and the amount of languages and people that are at my fingertips right now. Uh, in a way that I don't think previous generations worried about, you know, it's like, if you, if you wanted to study something in the nineties, right, you'd have to go to a library, you'd have to hopefully get a librarian to help you do some research. And all of that is gone. Like we just type in some words and we can have access to everything. So what do we do with that? And how do we ethically engage with information? Like, I think this book might end up being more important as time goes on um, because because we are all in this position that 
that in 2000, we didn't quite recognize for what it was. We were just all stoked. Like, more information's better. More access is better. And now we're going, is it? <laughs> because we have a, you know, I mean, obviously it is. But how we deal with that is the question, right? Like, how do you engage with information? How do you limit the amount of information you that you intake and output? Like, that seems to be way more essential than we ever thought because um, it just naturally we were limited. Mm. And so I don't know. I think it's a book like this might have more meaning, uh, you know, and be reevaluated. And, and, you know, I don't know. I, I also just do think there's something to literature that pushes the boundaries of language the way that this book does. I love stuff like that. Mm. And and it always is it's never going to be popular, you know, like right. at the time, you know, I, I think – People like Virginia Woolf and, you know, they're, 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 they're appreciated more later. Um, you know, maybe they're appreciated in their time, but they're certainly recognized after. There is one more. other thing, which is that this book is really fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of dark humor. I just was flipping through and there's just this one little line. Um, a character has died, committed suicide. And Ludo is uh, sitting beside his... Uh, his cooling body and he's having these huge existential thoughts and he, he says i wish i'd discussed it with him i did not think his wife would enjoy arriving at a more rational position immediately after discovering the fact of his suicide <laughs> yeah yeah and it's just like it's it's absurd you know but it's also he's 11 you know so an 11 year old yeah. is having these thoughts and it's like it, it's amusing on top of everything yeah. else in a in a really dark, fucked up way. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, a remarkable piece of work. I, I'm gonna have to think about it some more. I mean, I read it slowly, so I had I did have the benefit of pondering stuff as I went. But I'll b I am I'm, I'm sort of curious to see who I recommend it to, like what student I say, Hey, you gotta read this. This book is gonna change the way you approach your writing. Um, yeah. That might that might be a, a litmus test as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm, All right. A thinker. Good. <laughs> mm. Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody! Thanks for listening.